So this is real. And if you don't want to believe it, I, I, I may not be able to convince you. Real and rising. Almost 100% of COVID deaths today are in people that are unvaccinated. The unvaccinated, the variants. The younger people who are mostly getting it. Very real signs of another COVID crisis. <laughs> the protests. We're behind them and hopefully they can find liberty. And the politics. To hold to account uh, those actors in Cuba uh, who have been responsible for the crackdown, for the repression. Action and reaction at the highest levels. Uh, yes, ma'am, I'm looking it up right now. It looks like a, a very large building collapsed. Like the building next to us is gone. I think the building is gone. One month, 98 souls. The loss of life, uh, it's just really a lot of mixed emotions. The legacy of Surfside has yet to be written. The big stories of the week, all live this week in South Florida. Good morning. I'm Glenna Milberg. Michael is off today. Great to have you with us. South Florida is the epicenter of two big stories this week. An exponential rise in COVID cases, almost all the most serious among the unvaccinated and the historic opportunity to support change in Cuba. And we begin today with that double dose for one of South Florida's members of Congress. All three of South Florida's Republican reps are Cuban American, including Carlos Jimenez of Miami, who is with us live. Congressman, good morning. Great to have you with us. Always great to be here, Glenna. How are you doing? Good, thank you, and a lot to talk about. So um, we have to begin with the COVID question, Congressman, because everyone watching is touched by what's going on right now. Obviously, COVID vaccinations, that's not a political topic. And yet no. there is a touch of politics to it because this week we really heard a very different message coming from our Republican elected leaders who really till this time have been dealing with vaccinations as a personal choice. That's been the message. And this week we heard very strongly uh, the governor and congressmen and women come out, uh, especially to say, get the vaccine, get it now, it's safe. I wanna get your take on that. I've always been a, a pro-vaccine person. I've, uh, you know, that we need to uh, thank the previous administration actually for putting out those three vaccines in less than a year. That's unheard of. And so I've, uh, I've always been uh, very, I've had trust in the vaccines. I've taken the vaccine. I had COVID. I had the monoclonal antibodies uh, also injected. It took, I had to wait about three months though uh, until after I, uh, I cleared, uh, I guess, the virus before my doctor advised me to take the vaccine. But both my wife and I took the vaccine um, and uh, we urge everybody to take the vaccine. You know, there's, you know, vac vaccines in general, they have, you know, the, there's been some word about vaccinations even before the COVID, you know, vaccinations where people are anti-vaccine. And I just think that, uh, that uh, you know, maybe they, have, maybe they have a good reason to be, but I, I haven't found one yet for not taking the COVID-19 vaccine. I want to show you a, a graphic uh, we can put up so everyone can see at the the numbers tell this incredible story of this gulf between who is vaccinated in the parties. This is an ABC Washington Post poll. So Democrats, 86% nationwide we're talking about of Democrats are vaccinated. And among Republicans, 45%, almost half are vaccinated. So when you couple that with the knowledge of, oh, well, let's take a look at this question too. When asked when will you probably decline the vaccination, Democrats, 6% of them said they'd probably decline and 47% of Republicans said that they would probably decline still. 
And so when we know this week, when we're hearing that the most serious cases, 95% of the cases that are in the ICU are unvaccinated people, what do you make of that? I think that, you know, we need to get more of that information out. I don't know why this is an ideological thing. It really shouldn't be an ideological thing. Actually, it was a Republican president who developed the vaccines. What? So, and warp speeded uh, it through. You know, we should trust that, right? And so uh, for Republicans that aren't trusting vaccine, but maybe, you know, it has to do with vaccinations in general, and they don't trust vaccinations, and they think there's something, something else going on. But I'm telling, you know, I'm urging everybody who's not vaccinated to get vaccinated. Um, look, there there also been some reports of some adverse reactions from some folks, but it's not gonna be, you know, the worst, you know, of the COVID-19. You, you know, you're rolling the dice with COVID-19. Sometimes you get it and it's mild and nothing happens, but sometimes you get it and the worst happens and, and, and you may die from it. And so, you know, I, everybody knows somebody who has, you know, perished from uh, COVID-19, you know, I know, uh, you know, the tragic, uh, you know, the tragedy that happened to the Monroe County uh, Commissioner, you know, where he himself and his, uh, himself, his wife and his daughter, okay, uh, all got it. And they had some tragic results out of that. And so, look, um, you know, I, I urge everybody to get the vaccine. If you're over 12 years old, uh, get the vaccine. And uh, even if, you, if you're young, get the vaccine. Uh, because that means that if you're, if you're vaccinated, there's a, there's a, more than a very high threshold that you will not get even the D variant, uh, especially if you take, you know, the Pfizer or the Moderna, but, uh, and then you won't pass this on to somebody in your family who may not be vaccinated and then who could have tragic consequences. And so look, like I said, I, I've taken the vaccine. My wife has taken the vaccine. Everybody I know is taking the vaccine, but there are some folks that just don't want to take the vaccine. So, and you know, as you said, you're not quite sure why they wouldn't, and you're giving some really good information, and yet there is misinformation and disinformation that is quantifiably likely the reason that there are people who just don't trust what they hear on television from what they might call mainstream media. They don't trust government. Um, you and I had a conversation when we bumped into each other about a month ago about yeah. a really a, a big concern about censorship on social media. And that yeah. was before we were facing what we're facing now. But in the light of so much misinformation on social media about COVID-19, you were very concerned about social media's uh, companies being able to censure or censor or pull information at their discretion. Right. Would this, would this change your mind somehow? No. No, it would not. I'll tell you why. Uh, the best the best way to deal with misinformation is more information. Now, I don't want some some uh, some kid in in uh, San Francisco determining what's right or wrong. What's what's the tr what's the truth? Okay. And so you start off with this, which is which sounds wow. Hey, we need to we need to get this misinformation out. But there, where does it end? I mean, you have you you have you have some. Uh, uh, pretty good uh, examples, okay, of what was used to be, well, that's misinformation. Turned out to be not misinformation, turned out to be true. And so the best, I am totally against censorship, uh, except for when you, you're yelling fire, you know, in a in a crowded uh, theater where you're going to cause a panic and kill people, okay, when there is no fire. So would it, you, do you um, think that this might, do you think yeah. that this might rise to that occasion? Because COVID is a, aside from an individual health issue, it is now becoming a public health issue. Would that rise to fire in a theater level? Uh, no, I think that the best thing, again, is to have more information. I also believe that some of this COVID stuff and some of this vaccination, resistance to vaccination, 
stems not from COVID. It stems from before. You know, there are a lot of mothers that are, that, uh, are uh, hesitant to vaccinate their children, thinking that it causes them some problems later in life. And so the whole deal with vaccinations isn't just COVID-related. It's, it's COVID-related, but it's also vaccinations in general. There are a bunch of people that just don't trust vaccines, period. That's it. And so, no, I think the best thing for, for that is more information. Look, Glenna, it's a very slippery slope. Uh, and the and these uh, tech companies have been using, you know, well, this is misinformation. Experts have said uh, and all that. And how many times have we found experts to be completely wrong? Uh, this this country wasn't built on censorship. This country was built on on an openness and and a a a debate of ideas and information. And you and I are smart enough to determine what's right or wrong. Uh, and frankly, when people say, "Well, hey, we need to." We need to, you know, uh, guard against misinformation. You really, what you're saying is that, you know, the American people aren't smart enough to figure it out for themselves. Well, what and are, I don't. Uh, I think the American people are smart enough to figure it out for themselves as long as they have the information. And some people, look, we have 315 million people, all right? You're going to have some people that no matter what you tell them, all right, uh, are going to say, well, no, I don't believe that. You know, I'm still, I, I'm sure there's still some flat earth people around, okay? And so point, point uh, you know, after all the evidence, they said, no, I still don't believe that. Well. You know, we give you all the, all the information. You have to determine for yourself what you think is right. I know uh, that is a, a wonderful segue, disinformation and lack of information and uh, trying for more information to get us into our Cuba discussion. I want to take a quick break first just for the uh, continuity of it. So sit tight. We'll okay. be right back in two minutes. We are back with Congressman Carlos Jimenez, Republican from Miami. I want to talk a little bit about the historic effort in Cuba right now and what the U.S. can do to support those protesting for freedom. Uh, Congressman, you've been in the middle of press conferences and protests. We just got notice of another one tomorrow that you'll be part of. Um, and so this week, President Biden did his first move and actually targeted sanctions more individually against the head of Cuba's armed forces and the the black uh, berets that are operating now on the streets to target people who are protesting. So I want to get your take on that. Uh, good move, not enough, uh, good start. I'm, I'm kind of predicting what they're going to say. Go for it. I think the best thing that, uh, that the president has done is he hasn't undone things like uh, the disaster that happened in the southern border when he undid all the President Trump's uh, uh, policies there. Oh, well, uh, wait a second. But in, in so, the, on the Cuba front, he didn't undo any of President Trump's I know. That's, that's why I said it was good. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. That's a good thing, okay, that he hasn't done undone uh, the, 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 the Trump policies yet, okay, because uh, there was this thing that anything had the name Trump on it must have been bad. And so... You know he hasn't done that. I I applaud him for that. This step take you know to uh, to sanction some of the people that are responsible for this uh, horrific uh, repression that's going on in the island. I think that's a good step. Is it going to make a difference? Uh, probably not. But look, um, here's what we need to do. A we as a country need to restore somehow find the technology to restore internet uh, connectivity inside the island. Not only can for them to be able to communicate among themselves, the Cuban people but also for the Cuban people to be able to show images and communicate with the outside world of what is actually happening in Cuba. Two, we need to support those dissident uh, leaders in a financial way, however we can. Um, we have to con continue with uh, 
with the tight sanctions uh, that we have against the regime. We have to make sure that the regime somehow doesn't get access to credit that it doesn't deserve. And it doesn't deserve any credit because it doesn't pay its bills. Uh, and those are the things that, uh, that we need to you know, uh, push forward. Uh, and so the Cuban people are not asking for remittances. They're not asking for a vaccine. They're not asking for food. They're asking for freedom. Uh, right, and, and so and let's. Amer and America should be at the leader, and gather our our allies and say, "Look, this is a a repressive, brutal regime that's been in power for 60 years. The people have told you they don't want this regime. We we need you to help us uh, to change and uh, to bring about change in Cuba." Okay, uh, so, so let me uh, let, let's just Congressman. Okay. You know, I hate to interrupt you, but you know, we only have this much time. So I want to be able to yeah, get in a lot yeah. as possible. So, okay, let's, let's go backwards a little, a little bit. Um, in, in, in my reporting lifetime, the U.S. has been very supportive of the concept of democracy in Cuba. The embargo has been in place in my lifetime. Um, supporting dissidents, the U.S. has done that. Let's go back to the restoring the Internet, because it's the Internet and social media that was the game changer two weeks right. ago. Um, and that's not as easy as it might sound, as the Biden administration is finding out, as you and your colleagues who have floated that idea is finding out. So yeah. spe specifically, what more can happen on that front as, as we're looking for that technology that doesn't really exist without violating international law at the moment? <laughs> so what, practically speaking, what are we not doing? What is the Biden administration not doing that can be oh, I'm not saying, I'm saying what they're, the good thing they're not doing is they're not undoing the Trump administration policies. I think that those are those are very good and very effective. So I, I like him to just keep those going. Uh, the sanctions on those individuals responsible for you know brutality, uh, I think, are good. Are they going to be effective? Probably not because they're not they're not going to leave Cuba. But but it's something. Uh, we need to really focus in on giving the people of Cuba a way to communicate amongst themselves and with the outside world. That is the key. And you were right, uh, Glenna. This was internet-based uh, uh, uprising, and that's why the Cuban government shut it down you know, as quickly as, as they did. They knew what was going on, uh, and so we need that for them to communicate with themselves and communicate with the outside world. And we're looking for ways to, to, to get that done. Uh, there, may be, or there may be applications that we can send to the Cuban people or create to, for the Cuban people to circumvent you know, what, what the Castro regime is doing. Uh, and I call it Castro regime because really the Castros are still in charge, but the communist regime in, in, in Cuba are doing. And so I've always, I always, number one thing I always say, hey, we need to restore internet uh, inside Cuba because that's, that I think is key and, to and uh, bringing back about change in, um, in Cuba. You have said that repeatedly, absolutely. And um, just want to get you on the record in the 30 seconds we have left. Do you foresee a time sooner or later when you would support military intervention? I think military intervention should always be on the table. You should never remove it. That's an option, all right? Is it something that you're gonna use now? No, but you never say never. Uh, and so I can I foresee a day where you see images coming out of Cuba where uh, you know you have wholesale you know, slaughtering of people, et cetera, and then the United States just can't stand by or the world can't just stand by and see it happen. So yeah, I can foresee a day like that, but uh, that's not right now. The military option should be on the table, should always be on the table, because that's always, you know, an option that you should have. That's a card that you play, but you play very, very carefully, and you don't play it that often. Congressman Carlos Jimenez, thank you. As always, we value your time, and it's great to see you. No, nice seeing you, too, Glenn. Thank you. You can't see me, though.
No, but no, thanks fine. for the thought. <laughs> Just thankfully, anyway. Okay. Take care. Thanks again. Next up, new numbers document a new alarm and a new type of COVID crisis that by all accounts did not have to happen. The CEO of Miami-Dade's Public Health System is here with us live next. As part of a ramped up response to the rise in unvaccinated COVID cases, new sites for both testing and vaccinations are now open today. Trent Kelly is at one of them. Trent, good morning. Are you seeing any takers out there? Uh, a pretty slow response out here so far, Glenna. Let's just say that uh, we're here at the Hallover Park site, as you mentioned. When it first opened up today, we saw maybe 10, 12 people in line tops. Now you can see uh, maybe about half that. Uh, waiting in line right now, just a few people stopping by every 15 minutes or so. An underwhelming response, but obviously this is just day number one for this new location, and officials hope things will pick up here as the week goes on. Let's take you out to some uh, new video now of another new testing and vaccination site. This is the one that opened up at the 95th Street Park over in Bay Harbor Islands. Also opening up earlier this morning, a similar scene there with just a few people trickling by periodically. We know all of these sites, these new sites, they are offering either the two dose Moderna or Pfizer shots plus the single dose Johnson and Johnson as things stand now here in Florida about 11 and a half million people have been vaccinated across our state. That's uh, roughly 60% of the population currently eligible for these shots and officials hope this expanded effort will boost those numbers even higher. So let's give you uh, that full list of those five new testing and vaccination locations uh, that as we mentioned are opening up today across Miami-Dade County. County, all five of them right there on your screen. They will be open seven days a week from eight in the morning until five in the afternoon. Earlier this morning, I happened to speak to Dana Goldman. She's one of the city commissioners for Sunny Isles Beach right up the road. She talked to me about the benefits of this new site and if she thinks it will actually help with the ongoing effort to vaccinate. Take a listen. I think it's an excellent idea, excellent implementation. This is very accessible, it's visible, and information is power. They absolutely have to get these testing sites as to getting all the, all the information out about, um, about COVID and uh, uh, positivity rates, and we have, to, we have to be well informed so that we can uh, control this and not create a second, a third, and a fourth wave. Yeah, and this also gives people uh, a place to go if they happen to have any questions about the vaccines. Anyone who may be hesitant, they can come up here and speak to some of the officials who are running these new sites. Again, this one will be open from 8 in the morning until 5 in the afternoon. We've got more information posted for you over on our website. That's on local10.com. For now, that is the very latest live from Hallover Park. Glenna, back over to you. Trent, thanks so much. Hopefully, you'll be seeing a lot more people out there today. Appreciate that. This week, doctors from around South Florida's busiest hospitals literally pleaded for the still unvaccinated to change their minds and get those COVID shots. And at the same time, we learned almost half the staff at Miami-Dade's Jackson Health System is among those unvaccinated. Right now, we have a chance to talk to the CEO of Jackson Health System. Carlos Magoya is with us live. Hi, Glenna. How are Good you? Good morning. I'm great. Thank you. I, I wanted to sort of tell you how stunned I and my colleagues were listening to that statistic that you gave in the middle. Actually, it was it's right after on this press call 
right after your own team and Dr. Lillian Abo literally did plead for people to get the vaccine. And so to find out that understanding that not all Jackson workers are healthcare workers, you have a whole community of non-medical related people working there too, but 42% of unvaccinated there on the front line of the worst cases was pretty stunning. Explain that. Well, since that, since that time, uh, Glenn, I would, I would think that that number is probably closer to 40. We've seen a lot of employees lately coming in there. I will also tell you that our doctors are 89% vaccinated. So the scientists understand the seriousness of the thing. And like I said in that press conference, you know, our people are no different than any anyone out there. They listen to rumors. And of course, because in the, they're in a hospital, they even listen to more rumors. And the problem is that there's a out there. And we all we're doing is continue to educate people. Since we've seen this extreme, uh, uh, highly infectious uh, vaccine virus that's going on today, right now, uh, we're seeing a lot more people starting to get vaccinated. And our, even our employees are, are doing that. But I'll, let me give you an, uh, an example of this, because this, this is important. Uh, as of three o'clock this morning, we got the late, latest sequencing from Miami-Dade County. Our pathology UM Jackson team got these numbers from our latest sequencing. 49% of our variants are Delta variants in Miami-Dade County. Just two months ago, it was 2%. It's 49% today. Wow. The Brazilian variant is still 26%. And here's a, a, a real shocking thing. There's something called the Colombian variant, which the World Health Organization is looking at interestingly because it's spreading in Colombia quite a bit and they haven't seen it anywhere outside of Colombia. Well, guess what? In the last week, 10% of our patients had the Colombian variant. Why? Because of the travel between Colombia and Miami. So Miami is a very different place that gets a lot of these variants in front of us. Luckily, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine are still 95% effective. Remember that, 95% effective. So Nothing put, is 100%. Right, so let's, let's put this into context for everyone watching because those were some stunning numbers on the variants that you just delivered. So for a variant to develop, and for COVID to spread, it needs hosts, what your doctors call the host, people, people to be infected. And people being infected are the unvaccinated. So does it stand to reason that by getting a vaccine, you're not only protecting yourself, but you're helping to end, to end, just like polio or smallpox, the ability for COVID to spread and become these variants that now you're seeing explode? Well, listen, it, without a doubt, that's what we've been saying all along for the last six months. The only way for viruses to spread, they need a, a, a body, they need a host. And without that host, it doesn't happen. The good news is we got 77% of all people in Miami-Dade County at least have one shot and 67, 68% have two shots already. That's great news. That still leaves 500,000 people in Miami-Dade County that are not vaccinated. We're seeing not just in Jackson, but throughout the entire community in South Florida, 95% of all patients in hospitals that have COVID are not vaccinated. This has transformed into the pandemic of the unvaccinated. The best way to deal with that is vaccinating everyone. And I know it's, it's really difficult because we try to do this all the time in educating people, but every extra person that we vaccinate is one better opportunity of reducing the spike that we got going on. Today, we quadrupled the number of COVID patients at Jackson that we had three weeks ago. We went from 50 to 198 patients in only three weeks. The number keeps climbing. The only way we're going to get that slope to reduce and the length of the search to come down 
is by people getting vaccinated. It's extremely important that we keep saying that. And I heard what you were saying before. I don't care what party affiliation you are. This is not a party issue. This is a science issue and a prevention issue. Yeah. Get vaccinated. So let me um, let me just share with you that we were on Jackson's campus this week talking to some of the employees who were not vaccinated. And one of them who worked in the engineering department, I had a whole conversation with, who said he just does not trust government. I actually put a little clip on my Twitter feed of that because I thought that was such an interesting statement. He doesn't trust government. That's the reason he's not being vaccinated. How do you get around that? How do you get around people like this engineer who just well, will not? The, 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 this is part of the misinformation. This, this vaccine was not created by the previous government administration or anything. It was created by scientists. And if you go to the history of this thing, how the RNA and how all this works, it was scientists predominantly around the world that created this vaccine, which is not like any other vaccine. All the vaccines in the history of the world are around animal-based vaccines. This is an RNA. This is this is a very different vaccine, and it has no relevance to all the uh, side effects that you see with other vaccines, meaning specifically the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. And that's why these two have a much higher effectivity rate than any of the other vaccines. And when you say that government created this thing, that's a complete fallacy and misinformation. And that's why we, myself and you, Glenn, as part of the media, we really have a responsibility on continuing to educate people. And I thank you very much for doing this and educating as many people as possible to understand this is not a government vaccine. This is the scientists coming up with the latest and unbelievable great situation that we have in front of us uh, of being able to stop this uh, virus this early. We're, we're trying for sure. Um, what, one more question for you based on what we saw in the last very serious run up when hospitals were so overwhelmed. Um, characterize how Jackson is doing and how the staff is holding up. And also, was there, is there any plan to maybe again forestall elective surgeries because of what you're seeing and the amount of work and rooms and resources that are being directed to COVID? At, at this point, even though we've talked about the, the, the rate of increase, we're at 200 patients. Last year when we did this, we had 500 COVID positive patients. We're nowhere near to that level at this point in time. We hope we don't get to those levels. I still have a, a, a glimmer of hope that because we have such a high uh, vaccination rate in Miami-Dade County, we are the largest, uh, we have the highest uh, vaccination rate in, in, in Dyer State of Florida, by the way, uh, that we will see uh, this this uh, surge lose its uh, fuel here pretty soon, I'm hoping. Uh, and if you look at any of the um, forecasts that we've got, is that this uh, surge will last another three to four weeks. If that is the case, we should be able to prevent it. But the only way we get there, we can't just sit at home, is by getting vaccinated. I know that people are tired of this. We've been at this for a year and a half already. I'm tired of it. But And, and of course, we've had so many other information. The Surfside uh, uh, problem that we had, unfortunately, the unfortunate problem, we had so many deaths. People were focused on that. They were focused on Cuba. They were focused on Haiti. But And so people forget oh, that little thing called uh, COVID. That little thing called COVID is still around and very much alive. Yeah. we got to get vaccinated. Yeah, and uh, we had reported on these new sites that opened. All of that is on our website. There's no way to not know as far as we're concerned. So Carlos Magoya, Jackson Health Systems, we always value your time and appreciate you being with us. Thank you. Thanks. Up next.
The Biden team's conference call on Cuba this week came without notice and without detail. But we're going to get some with someone who was on it, former Miami-Dade College President Eduardo Padron, with us live next. This week, President Biden heeded the call to reach out to Cuban Americans and did so on a conference call that had no prior public notice and no readout of the conversation afterwards. The group on the call included Cuban Americans who are more moderate or who have in the past supported engagement with the government there. Eduardo Padron was on that call. He is a former longtime president of Miami-Dade College, now President Emeritus, and serves on a list of boards. So what, consultant emeritus on things like education and financial and urban affairs. Dr. Padron, great to have you with us. It's good to be with you. So we want to hear about the call. Um, set the tone, if you. I mean, first of all, this was not private, so we're not breaching any confidentiality. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. So set the tone of the call uh, before we get into some detail. Was it collaborative? Was it a debate? Set the tone for us. Well, I think it was, um, uh, you know, a group of individuals that uh, the uh, White House wanted to hear. Uh, the positions and our thoughts in terms of how to best uh, support uh, freedom in Cuba and bringing democracy to Cuba and a reaction to the uh, uprising and the demonstration that took place uh, on the on July 11th and then on the days after. So I would describe the whole tone of the discussion, uh, yeah, collaborative uh, and uh, I think there was a great deal of consensus in terms of some of the things that were that were suggested. So there likely was consensus because on this call there really were no what we would what we know in Miami and South Florida to be the exile community's hardliners. Um, and you see them, and you've seen them protesting. Uh, you see them so excited about seeing what's going on on the island and and a possible opportunity that there was never before since the revolution 60 years ago. So on this call, nobody from that camp was invited to participate. Do you know why that is? Well, Glenn, I really don't know uh, who was invited and who was not. Uh, I knew some of the people that were in the conversation, but I think the, the thing that is important here, this is not about political parties, this is not about Position. This is about the freedom of Cuba. And I think in that way, I think Cubans, regardless of their affili party affiliation, whatever, uh, are very much on the same page. Uh, there are some political overtones here and there, but in fact, I think we all need to make sure that what we are really working for is to helping our brothers and sisters in Cuba achieve their goals yeah. and their goals is nothing less than freedom that's what the cuban people want yeah so you heard well right after that phone call the president levied his first sanctions targeted we spoke about today uh, against individuals on the island um do you want to share with us maybe some recommendations that uh, the group gave the president vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the embargo more targeted sanctions figuring out how to open internet possibilities there. Were there any hardcore recommendations that you gave the president? Well, I, I think the president has been quite receptive to the recommendations uh, that were provided during the call. 
but they are also the same recommendations that I hear all the time from my friends to the left and my friends to the right. The first one, I think to me, the most important one is uh, access to the internet. Uh, we need to realize that while other countries have been enjoying internet for rather long time now, it's a recent phenomena in Cuba. Access to the internet in Cuba is a relatively recent thing. And I will tell you that it's the most important weapon Cubans uh, have in order to be able to communicate uh, with each other throughout the island and to communicate with the outside world. As a matter of fact, it was because of the internet that the world was able to witness the barbarian, the uh, brutal repression uh, that the Cuban government engages in. Cuba is a failed police state and is uh, frankly weaponizing human suffering and is such a repressive dictatorship that is violating uh, every possible human right uh, for the Cuban people. And thanks to the internet, for the first time, really, the, the, the whole world was able to see that government, that regime uh, in action. And I think that was important. So, so is there, let me just I interrupt you for a moment yeah, because, um, you know, with this Skype and Zoom process, I'm, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to make sure we have enough time to really get down into some detail. Uh, we spoke with Congressman Jimenez before that the devil mm -hmm. in the detail of getting Internet uh, open and accessible there is quite challenging. Um, ha did you talk any detail about that? No, but we know it's challenging. And most of the experts that I have uh, talked to have read about, uh, this is a major, major enterprise that is not easy to do and it's very expensive. Even in the United States, we have uh, significant rural areas throughout the nation that still today do not have access to the internet. But uh, the president pledges to work with private sector uh, providers uh, to be able to find ways in which that can be alleviated and to circumvent the censorship of the Cuban government. So that was one. But there are other things that uh, you know were recommended, and one is humanitarian aid. Uh, you need to understand the Cuban economy is in shambles, and people in Cuba are going hungry. The lines of people for food and basic medicines are never ending, and people may spend 24, 48 hours in a line, and then at the end not being able to get anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So providing humanitarian aid in the form of food and basic medical supplies is crucial. The key thing is to find responsible international organizations that are able to deliver this to the Cubans directly without government intervention. And that was very much emphasized to make sure that those supplies that are sent from the United States and other countries do not end on, you know, in the hands of the military. The same is true with the remittances. Uh, when you know, We need to make sure that the money that the family send to support Cubans uh, goes to the Cubans and not, not uh, the that government. the military do not get a significant cut. Yeah, Dr. Pedron, um, I, so, I want to let you know I, I appreciate your time and um, all, all good directions, and I invite you to please do keep in touch with us as this progresses because the devil in the details is something that I know everyone is working on and time is of the essence. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Okay, take care. Thank you. Up next, one month since the collapse in Surfside changed the lives of so many in so many ways. 
the first-hand account of the rescue and recovery and where it all stands, and that's when we come back. It was some of the most difficult work ever for those who do profoundly difficult work for a living, recovering those who were lost in a matter of minutes as Surfside Champlain Tower South collapsed one month ago. After a month of round-the-clock digging, the work at the site officially ended this week, and those who spent those days emotionally and physically entrenched were saluted by a grateful community as they returned to hug their own families. Miami Fire Chief Joe Zeralban is with us live to represent. Chief, good morning, good afternoon, good to see you. Glenna, good to see you, always a pleasure. So you today with us represent so many from Miami-Dade County and Miami and the eight uh, urban search and rescue teams from around Florida who are here on that pile working for the first time all together in any non-hurricane response. And, and we saw that day to day and it was different than the work you usually do in so many ways. Please do share that with us. Yes, Glenna, it is one of the uh, first times that we've brought all of the eight urban search and rescue teams together on one consolidated mission outside of hurricanes. And I must say that, uh, that the teams worked so well together and the work that they did was, it, it was just, it was courageous and it was nonstop. And I couldn't be more proud of all of the Florida urban search and rescue teams, as well as the federal assets, the federal urban search and rescue teams that came in to assist us because the, the work, as you saw, was insurmountable. It, it was uh, mind-bending and surreal, and I think I speak for probably a lot of people who just haven't really wrapped their head around it quite yet, even to this day. Um, and for Miami-Dade's team, which is Urban Search and Rescue Team 1, and for City of Miami, your team, uh, Urban Search and Rescue Team 2, it was quite personal. There we find six degrees of separation in South Florida. Everybody knew someone connected to Champlain Tower South, a deeply personal story. Um, and for your team, one morning we woke up and learned that uh, one of your firefighters' daughters was pulled, recovered from that wreckage. Um, and I wonder if you would, without compromising any kind of privacy, talk a little bit about how your department helped him handle that. Well, it was without a doubt one of the most difficult things that our department has ever dealt with and for me one of the most difficult moments of my career, which is, yes, uh, one of our firefighters whose uh, seven-year-old daughter was uh, lost in the collapse. And we actually had two firefighters that were personally affected, one who was actually inside uh, the tower, uh, the, the area of the tower that, uh, that did not collapse, thankfully. And again, our firefighter who had his daughter lost in the collapse. So yes, it was a very difficult time for our task force and for all the task forces, because as we work on that site, we stand together as one team. Um, and that was evidenced the day that we found uh, our firefighter's daughter and every team member, regardless of their affiliation, regardless of the shift they were working, uh, when, as we were recovering our firefighter's daughter, when we turned around, every task force member, about 420 of them were standing uh, silent in a line waiting for us to, um, to bring her out. And that was a, a strong sign of solidarity, a strong sign that, uh, 
that we as a city of Miami, Florida Task Force 2 and our firefighters were not alone. We were in this together and we will continue to be in this together. And we stand alongside the families of all of those who were lost and all of those who were affected. Every crew member working out there is a family member as well, for sure. So as of this morning, um, work has ended there at the site. Work continues off-site where the uh, county and county police actually spearheading still at a site near the airport where a lot of the debris is. I wonder if you would bring us up to date. 97 souls have been identified. Uh, there is still someone yet to be found, Hestel Hedea is presumably the last person to be recovered and identified. Um, what happens now? What, where are we with that? Well, work is done for the urban search and rescue teams, but obviously there is more work to be done. And as we uh, left the scene and the secondary site, that scene was handed over to Miami-Dade Police Department, and they are the lead agency handling the investigation, as well as the search moving forward. So they will uh, continue to go through the process. They will continue their investigation, and um, ultimately they will update us on the, uh, the results of that investigation and the results of the uh, last individual that we are waiting to hear about. So as we are standing here now, firefighters, the urban search and rescue, there is no, the involvement is finished. There is no more involvement here? The urban search and rescue teams have been demobilized. And although we stand ready, stand in a support role, as you can imagine, the teams need some much deserved rest. So we are placing them on their, uh, their 96 hour hiatus. Uh, so that they can rest, they can spend time with their family, and they can be ready for the next mission that uh, that we ask them to to uh, respond to, which could very well be hurricanes. As you know, we are in hurricane season, and it is usually a very active season for us. So not only are we rehabilitating our personnel, but we're rehabilitating our equipment as well. And um, all of the Florida teams, Florida 1, Florida 2, all the way through Florida Task Force 8, are doing the same thing uh, with the assistance of the state of Florida and funding from the state of Florida so that we can be ready to respond at a moment's notice. In the last minute that we have left, you know, we, we are still learning and I think we'll be learning so many lessons uh, from what happened on many levels. What did your teams learn from this experience? Well, I, I think we learned a lot, Glenna, and I don't think a minute is enough time to uh, <laughs> to explain everything we learned. But one of the things that uh, that we have learned uh, most intimately is when something strikes your backyard, strikes you at home, how difficult it is emotionally to deal with it. So we do have a lot of people that are hurting right now, and we know that we're going to need to support these people now and into the future. So we're putting a program in place so that the uh, emotional health and wellness of these of these responders are always at the forefront of our thoughts, and we are stand we stand ready to give them the assistance they need should they need it, whether it be today or you know a year from now. Um, you know, post traumatic stress disorder is a real issue for us. Yeah, and as I explained to our members um, when when I gave them a speech when we came home. Uh, if you're having problems sleeping at night, please pick up the phone and call me because chances are I'm not sleeping either. Excellent advice and uh, our gratitude, a community's gratitude to you and everybody involved. Chief Zeralban, thanks so much for being with us.
Thank you. And we'll be right back. Thank you so much for being with us on This Week in South Florida. Remember, we are online 24-7 at local10.com.